0: Good morning everyone i'm just going to double check for a second if you are in the back row and can you hear me okay awesome good job over here thank you very much my name is Dave Denhan, and uh, I am a pastor in the Christian Reformed Church. Have been for, well, my word, longer than I care to say, um, since 1994. It's when I graduated from seminary, and uh, served a couple of churches—one in Minnesota, and then for 18 years I was at Fairway in Jenison, just down, just down that way, about three, four miles, and. Uh, Ever since uh, 2000, or 2018, I've been working with Pastor Church Resources and connecting with uh, churches like Ivan Rest, where things are going reasonably reasonably well. Vacancy, maybe some things to think about. Uh, and I was with uh, just talking to Karen Lapine a little bit ago. We were remembering meetings we'd had a year and a half or so ago, just thinking things through. And I get to ga- uh, gather also with churches where things are not going so very well. Where there's conflict in the air, there's just hard things to think through. People are at odds with each other, and and a colleague of mine, Sean Baker, we get to walk into those situations, really have a front row seat to uh, some hard stuff, and then helping those folks make their way through that hard stuff. And I get to be with pastors, uh, pastors who are just doing great. And uh, they need a little resourcing, maybe, for learning how to do ministry better or whatever. And there are some pastors who are just really having a difficult time. And especially now in this COVID environment, wow, it is a challenge being a pastor in a church where you've got people who are saying, Pastor, I ain't coming if people are wearing masks and we got to wear masks. And Pastor, I ain't coming if nobody's wearing a mask. And how do you negotiate all of that stuff? How do you sort that through with your counsel, with your leadership? And how do you deal graciously with people whose anxieties that are driven by COVID are are coming into those conversations? So at Pastor Church Resources, we get to work with situations like that. And uh, contrary to what you might think... It is a privilege and an honor to be in those holy moments when there's conflict in the air, there's difficult things to sort through, and we get to see God doing his good thing in the middle of those hard situations. Your ministry shares get to pay for all of that, so thank you very, very much for helping us to do those good ministries. We are really, really appreciative. This morning, everybody, as I was, uh, as I was getting ready to come here, I stepped into my, onto my driveway, and my neighbor Josh, uh, next-door neighbor, great guy, sitting on the on a back of his the bumper of his vehicle and just enjoying the morning, right? It was about 8 o'clock or whatever and and he said, Dave, what are you up to today? And I said, I'm preaching outside today <laughs> And he said, and and mind you, he's a guy who left the church long ago. Really hasn't had much use for the church. We get to have some great conversations. And uh he said, Oh, you're preaching outside today, are you? That just means you have to pound the pulpit even harder, he said. Pound that pulpit. Stop sinning, people! And I see that you haven't provided me with a pulpit to pound, so I might have to find some other way to stay warm. Um, But it is a joy to be with you. We're going to look at Genesis 6 together here in just a minute. And uh, inside your bulletins, you've got an insert that has uh, three articles from the Belgic Confession. Anybody remember that thing? The Belgic Confession when's the last time you opened up the belgic confession it's a it's one of our three historic uh confessions the heidelberg catechism the canons of dort and the belgic confession Belgic confession is an interesting story we won't get into it now but it's born out of conflict and it's a teaching tool for churches that wanted to return to the scriptures and wanted to stay with the scriptures and wanted to make their case uh, to all of the all of their neighbors, to say, no, this is where we want to remain here in the Bible, and the, and what it teaches, and we want to have this shape our life and our and our faith. Guido de Bray, the author of the Belgian Confession, talks about a wide variety of things, but here in the three articles we're going to look at, and we're not going to read the whole thing. I'm just going to reference these things. So. Uh, the material is printed for you there, so you can take it, take it home if you want to later on and read through them in their totality. But he talks about creation, he talks about providence, and he talks about the fall. And the reason I want to bring that here this morning is because we live in an environment today, everybody, where the grand story that all of us share as people of God is harder and harder and harder to keep lodged in our brain when there is so much anger in the, in, the, in the air, so much disquiet, so much confusion, that remembering the, the main story, the, the big story that God's given to us, becomes even more important. And so we're going to travel into that story today. It's a familiar story. There won't be any magical aha moments here this morning. But it is the kind of story I want you to leave this morning with firmly lodged in your brain so that tomorrow morning when you have a hundred voices coming at you telling you to do this and to be that and to think that way, you'll be able to respond out of the context of this grand and great story that God's given to us. Does that make sense? All right. Well, let's go to Genesis uh, chapter 6 together. Um, and is it? I'm, I'm trying to remember if it's printed in here or if I need to pull my phone out. Let's see here. Oh, it is printed. Your people here are fantastic. All right, Genesis 6, verses 1 through 8. The story of creation is done, the story of the fall has been told. Uh, and now we're about to launch into the story of Noah. Before the author of Genesis takes us there though. There's some things he wants to make sure we're aware of so here they are When human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them The sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful and they married any of them. They chose and Then the Lord said My spirit will not contend with humans forever That's an interesting verb Because the initial words of this text would make it sound as if all is well. And that the creational mandate to be fruitful and multiply, that's being fulfilled. That's a good thing, right? So why is God talking about contention? Having to contend with, to have to deal with human beings. That's just an interesting little verb there. My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be 120 years. I'm going to limit their lifespan. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them. They were heroes of old, men of renown. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth. And his heart was deeply troubled so the lord said i will wipe from the face of the earth the human race that i have created and with them the animals the birds and the creatures that move along the ground for i regret that i have made them but noah found favor in the eyes of the lord ah now there's the the hint about where the author is going to be going in the next three chapters so my friends what i want to have you think about this morning is um And this is your little road map for the next few minutes here together okay god's frown no excuse me god smiles he grieves and he smiles again that's our roadmap for where we're going to go together for the next little bit god smiles he grieves and he smiles again i want to have you think with me about verse six for a minute and a couple of words there right Um, one of the words is regret god regretted something and that ought to make you go hold on oh wait a second I thought God was perfect Uh, I thought he knew all of the future and that regret would not be a part of his vocabulary what are we talking about God regretting something like he had done something bad or evil or something to be regretted that doesn't make any sense I know what it is to regret and you do too right we've made decisions that we've regretted I regretted buying my first car it was a 1982 Pontiac Phoenix and uh, by the time somebody crashed it for me <laughs> a, month, a year and a half later I had paid for it twice I bought it and then I repaired it with that much money again I regretted that decision I've regretted emails that I have sent. maybe you've regretted emails that you've sent as well and Google has that wonderful little undo feature That saves us from regret, right? I've regretted things that I've done as a husband. I've regretted things that I've done as a dad. I've regretted things that I've done as a friend. I've regretted things I didn't say, things I did say, things I didn't do, things I did. I know what it is to regret, and you do too. And here we see God regretting something that he had made the human race. In the King James Version, it says he repented. Can you imagine? He repented as if there was something he needed to repent of. How does that work with God? It just seems to make very little sense to us as we think about God being perfect and not needing to, uh, to repent of anything. Where does that come from? Speaking of repentance, interesting little story. Ethan Zuckerman was uh, an employee of a company called Tripod. This is a bunch of years ago. And uh, he had he and his, his people in his company had put together a, a way to build websites for free for consumers. And they, they spent five years trying to make uh, a way to have this pay, like generate money, income for them. Couldn't come up with anything until he decided... This is what I'm going to do. I'm going I'm to develop an algorithm so that it reads what people generally are interested in and then finds companies that match that need, and I'll place those advertisements on the web pages that they're looking at. And it became the most universally hated element of the internet. Anybody know what we're talking about? Pop-up ads. Zuckerman regretted that he had created pop-up ads. This is the kind of regret we're familiar with. So it makes us go, huh? When we read here in Genesis 6, verse 6, that God regretted something. That just... What's really interesting about this is that the scriptures don't actually start this way. And this is the smile part, right? This is the smile part of the of the map I gave you a minute ago. The scriptures begin with God smiling a lot. He created Genesis 1 and 2 are the story of his wonderful, majestic, ingenious creation of the world and the universe. And we hear God say time after time, and it was good, and he saw that it was good, and he saw that it was good, and... He set the earth on its axis at, I think it's 27 degrees, so that it really generates the kind of environment where life can flourish. He said, that is good. <laughs> he created the environment in which we live and breathe. He put nitrogen and oxygen at just the right ratio, and that was good. He made leopards and lions, and that was good. He made insects. He made plants to grow out of the, out of the, out of the earth and seed-bearing plants, and that was good he made human beings and that was very good <laughs> that was i was so very good because the human element of creation is made in his image there are things of god within the human race that are not within any other part of creation and so it was very good when he made when he made creation he smiled a lot I'm reminded of when I was a kid in high school and I had a train set, H-O scale train set. Anybody else do trains at all? I see a couple of folks. H-O scale, that means that the trains were about that tall, maybe about that long. And I laid track, you know, for this train set. I created a little town, had a bunch of little houses in it, a gas station, a hotel, had a church. Everybody went to church on Sunday in my town. And I called it Davidsbury. (laughs) <laughs> little egomaniac back there in high school and I had a farm outside as a campground as well there's a factory and um, when I got to a place where everything was in place on my train set I would I would go down to the basement where my train set was and I would just start you know fire the train up and I turn all the lights on a little little uh, little lampposts Scattered around and little lights underneath the houses. So if you turned the lights out in the family room, you could turn the lights on in the railroad set. It'd be kind of cool. And I smiled as I saw Davidsbury, my creation. It just brought me joy and pleasure to see what my hands had done. I'd laid in sawdust and you know along these rail lines and stuff. It just looked real. It was awesome. I think that's part of the smile that, uh, that God experienced, at creation in Genesis 1 and 2. And, and we can identify with that. I mean, look at this, look at this. This blue sky above us, the trees that are green right now, and in a, about three weeks, they'll turn incredible shades of red and orange and yellow. We're gonna get off to, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, Colorado on Thursday. My wife and I, we got a wedding there to go to. My nep- nephew's getting married. And we'll see the mountains just west of Colorado, and we'll travel up those mountains into Rocky Mountain National Park, and we will see some of the things that made God smile at creation. And you can picture these things in your mind, the mountains and the snow peaks, and the glaciers and the rivers and the trees, the pine forests. These things that make God smile. You go to a hospital to a new mom holding her baby, And it's a holy moment. These things make God smile. These things that are of his hands, that he's made, that he's engineered, that he's put together. It makes the world a sense that that the beginning of creation is God's smile. And then we get to our, our text. God repents. And you know, we've traveled through a few things that Make that word make a little bit of sense, right? Genesis 3 is the story of the fall. Eve eats the fruit. Adam joins her. They rebel against God. They say, God, we can, we can do this on our own. We really don't need you. That's the fundamental flaw of the human race from that point forward, this misunderstanding that we can do life without God. Genesis 4, Cain kills Abel. It's as if the fall has taken such deep root already that in one of the very basic components of the human race, brokenness occurs to the worst degree that it can, where a brother murders a brother. And then you get to our text here in chapter six, you know, and and it starts out well enough, as I said a minute ago, uh, human beings are increasing in numbers, what they're supposed to do. God must be smiling over that, you would think, right? And, uh, and then you see that verb contend, and you go, huh, wonder what that's about. And then you get to verse four, and the Nephilim, and wow, that's a mystery. We're not quite sure what that's all about. These sons of God, and the daughters of human beings, and they had children, and so on. They were heroes of old, men of renown. You're not quite sure what to do with all of that, and scholars, frankly, aren't quite sure what to do with all of that, except that we see that in the verse afterwards, there's a description of something painful that God sees how great the wickedness of the human, of the race had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of our hearts, every inclination was only evil all the time. And then you get that word, where the Lord regretted what he had made. And he looked at the people on the face of the earth and the way they were treating one another, and the way they were treating his creation, and the way they were distancing themselves from God, just like Adam and Eve had done back in the Garden of Eden. And he he could see into the minds of these people and see that every single thought, every one was somehow twisted and tainted so that instead of being oriented towards the glory of God, it was oriented towards building my kingdom at your expense, and at your expense, And at the expense of this, I'm going to build my kingdom. And God looked at all of that, and he regretted. And like I said, the King James Version is pretty dramatic. It's he repented. He repented. And our travels through Genesis 3 and 4 help us to make sense of that for sure. And then what we see in Scripture after this story helps us to make even more sense of it we see god selecting a a a nation the children of abraham and they start out well enough with abram and sarai and and they become this nation of, of a bunch of people there in egypt god rescues them brings them to israel the place where he wants them to shine the light of the kingdom of god upon the nations of the earth And if you go to judges you see the cycles of disobedience where they obey for a little while and then they disobey and then God sends a nation to punish them or a plague or something and then he sends a judge to help kind of rescue them bring them back to equilibrium and then they sin again for a while And it's just this heartache it's heartache for God where they sin again and again and again they rebel against him they fight against each other they abuse the creation and you get to places like the book of Ezekiel where you read in, this, in one of these verses in this marvelous, marvelous prophecy, God pleading with his people, he, he says to them in, in the words of Ezekiel, why, why, why will you die? And you just see the frown of God and and the grief of God writ large throughout the Old Testament as the people that he's made in his image continue to sin and break and twist and mangle. And the word that we have here in our text, this really sad word of repenting or of regretting, makes more and more sense as you travel your way through the Old Testament. This hard word that we get because we know what it is to repent. Just a, it's just a hard thing that the, the, the Old Testament makes it clear again and again and again. And I'm going to take you back to uh, back to David'sbury for a second, okay? There was a, a a day in the life of David'sbury where I was at school, high school, and my parents had friends of theirs come over who had little rugrats with them, and these four and six and nine-year-old for whatever reason they weren't in school that day much to my regret and they found their way down into the basement because my folks said hey that's where the toys are That's where the books are for you kids so go ahead and they found my train set and they swung their arms over the top of that train set and started taking the little cars and driving them down the roads and snapping off telephone poles and moving the houses that I had put in place. And there were some trees that they snapped over because it couldn't quite reach where they wanted to reach, so they had to kind of reach over the tree and this tree would snap. And and I found, I found Davidsbury at the end of the day in ruins. And I, I, I think I regret might be a good word actually to describe what I was feeling. like. I'm not sure I even want to bother putting this place back together. It's just a wreck. It's just a wreck. I regretted having the kids come and wreck what I had made. Regret. God's frown. So we see God smile at creation, right? All kinds of reasons for him to smile. And we see him grieve in our text. And what we read prior to our text in those few chapters and what we read subsequent to our text in the rest of the Old Testament just makes a world of sense that he would regret that even though he is perfect, even though he makes no decision that he would go back on and say, I would do that over again, he allowed creation to fall because he wanted to give human beings the freedom to act of, of their own accord. And that little seed of freedom turned toxic and led to God's regret let's go to that very last verse in the text okay the very last verse and there's a glimpse of a reason for God to start smiling again a glimpse maybe the first one since creation fell into ruin in verse 8 Noah Found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Huh. So, in the midst of all of these things that provided God with reason to regret, there's one person who finds favor in God's eyes. One person. His name is Noah, and the next three chapters are actually going to tell his story, the story of Noah, and the flood, and the ark that he built, and it's a story of God cleansing this creation that had brought him such pain. Noah was righteous in the eyes of God, found favor in the eyes of God. Now, let me ask you to think about this for a second. the next three chapters, some of you are familiar with the story. The floods come, the ark is there, Noah's in the ark with his family and, and the animals. And there's an altar at the very end of the story where Noah brings worship to God. Let me ask you to think about this one question Does the flood manage to reverse the fall? and lead God to move from the regret that we read about in chapter 6, verse 6 of Genesis, to lead him from that, that frown, that grieving, to a smile. Does the fall fix the world? I mean, does the, the flood fix the world? Just think about that on your own for a second. And the, the obvious answer, if you read the rest of the Old Testament, is uh, no. Nope. Doesn't even come close. Doesn't even come close. What's happened to the fall? Or what, happened, what happened to creation by the fall is so deep and embedded that not even a flood is going to be able to put things right. Not even a flood is going to be able to reverse what whatever it was that infected creation when Adam and Eve said no to God. But there is a another man who finds favor in the eyes of God that I want to tell you about. Another man who finds favor in the eyes of God in a profound, profound way. If you've got Bibles with you, get your phone with you. I'm going to have you turn with me to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, where Mark, one of the four gospel writers, is introducing, oh man, a whole bunch of things to his readers, to his people. And I would actually like to take you, I think it's to verse 9. Yeah, verse 9. And uh, what we're about to read is, uh, of course, happens long, long, long after Noah, long after the flood, long after Ezekiel, 400 years after the last word of the Old Testament, in fact. And Mark takes us to the Jordan River. Um, where we find John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the one ordained by God to prepare the way for the Lord, the one who is coming. And he is baptizing people who come to him from Jerusalem and from Samaria and from Galilee, from all over the place. And he's baptizing them for repentance. That is, they, they come to him, they realize there's something of God in his message and they, they can't help themselves but say, there's something wrong with me that I need to repent of. There's something about me that I grieve. And John promises them uh, a one who will come, who will bring them relief. Anyway, that's the scene. And then in verse 9, we, say, uh, we hear from Mark, At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now, that should make you go, Huh, what's that about? It's not like Jesus has anything to repent of, to grieve over. I mean, he's a perfect human being, a perfect God person. Hey, everybody. <laughs> perfect. Perfect never done anything that he would need to repent of. Why is he being baptized by John in the Jordan River, a baptism that's reserved for those who need to repent? Well, here's the secret to why Jesus is submitting to baptism. It's because he's wanting to say to all of, their, all of those who are there at the river and to all of creation and to God himself, his Father, I am going to take the place Of all the people here who are coming for baptism who need to repent and not only their place but the place of everybody who needs to repent i'm going to take their place and pay the price that they should pay that's why jesus comes to john there at the jordan for for baptism And then this is really interesting, verse 10 of Mark chapter 1. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice from heaven, and I want to have you picture the voice um, as a voice in which when you hear it, you can tell that this person is smiling. It's like Terry DeBoer on Wood TV 8 telling you the weather forecast. You don't even have to be looking at the television set, and you know she's smiling because her voice just exudes that, okay? Okay. Verse 10, just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open, the spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice from heaven, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. With you, I am well pleased. And I want to remind you of what's just happened that would would trigger God to say this that Jesus, the perfect human being, God-man, has come to the Jordan River, undergone baptism, which is supposed to be for the wicked people, right? Those who have, have things to regret, to repent of. He's taking their place. He's indicating that by going through baptism himself. He's saying, I'm going to take the place of these people here at the Jordan River as they're being baptized as a foretaste of when I will truly take their place at the cross of Calvary where I will die in their place as payment for their sin. It's at that point that God descends from heaven in the form of the dove, and his voice coming before everybody who's there, saying, you are my son, Jesus, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. And you can hear the smile behind that sentence. Because God is going to get his beloved creation back again. God is going to get piece by piece by piece by piece throughout the New Testament on into our age and on into the age to come when he will make all things perfect and well. He gets his creation back. He gets us back because of what Jesus will do at the the cross. He gets us back. And you and I, we can identify with all three of these kind of map Notations. God's initial smile, his frown, and his smile again. We know what it is to smile about creation. We talked about that. Go to Colorado, you know, take a look at the sky here today. We know what it is, why God smiled at creation. We know why he would frown and and why he would experience this regret over creation because we've seen enough of that today. Look at the news. And you see politicians who are lying through their teeth to us. You see evidence of COVID wreaking havoc with all of humanity here in our country and around the world. You see racial injustice. You see people responding to racial injustice on both sides of the issue in ways that are destroying the human community here in the United States. You see all kinds of evidence of the twisting that began at creation that has found its way through into the rest of the world. You see why, you and I know why God would frown. We get that. But here's what I want you to leave with today. We can also identify with this new smile that God is developing. Because, because we see evidence around us of the kingdom of God being injected into this broken creation at key points along the way that make God smile because he's the engineer behind them, and that make us smile because we get to witness what God is busy with. We do see politicians speaking truth from time to time and enacting wonderful legislation that brings grace and truth to bear upon the human condition. We see these things. We see people rising to the occasion of COVID-19 and heroically coming to the rescue of people around them. Whether they're Christian or not, they're evidencing the things that God loves, and God smiles. We see young people making profession of faith in churches just like this one. Across the country, coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, not just because their parents have said, we believe, but because God has said, I'm God, and you're mine evidence of 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 the kingdom breaking into this dark place one final story i was talking to a a group of pastors uh, church planters actually a couple of weeks ago and uh and one of them at the beginning of covid back in march can you remember that back that far enough now Back in March, at the beginning of COVID, as COVID was rolling out, and as we were beginning to reckon with how significant a thing this was, he and his wife talked to each other and said, how are we going to do this together? How are we gonna navigate and negotiate our way through all of the implications that come with this thing, that force us to stay inside, that force us to do mass, that force us to be six feet apart from others, that force us just to do all kinds of things we're we're not used to doing? How are we going to do this? They kept having this conversation, renegotiating along the way, how they were going to kind of flex with the new, uh, the new things that they were experiencing because of COVID-19. The beginning of the summer rolls around for these, this couple. They got three kids, three boys, and they, they say to themselves, we can, we can at least be outside now. Isn't that terrific? Let's do this. Let's, as a family, bike the White Pine Trail. 93 miles to Cadillac all of it laid some of it paved some of it not but all of it laid well enough that we can bike the whole thing let's take our three boys and bike all 93 miles we'll do it in stages <laughs> we'll do it in stages so we can manage this thing you know maybe a stage a week something like that but let's do this let's, let's do this as a way to celebrate life even in the midst of COVID-19 I thought that's, that's a great idea as I was listening to this guy tell the story and then he talked about one of his sons who um, was making his way into 12, 13, 14. I don't remember exactly the age, but he was he was getting to be a, a sullen, distant, quiet kid. And as his mom and dad were watching this beginning to unroll, unravel, take place in his life, they were just racked with... Grief and wondering, what do, we, what do we do with our son? We don't feel we can reach him. He's becoming a different person before our very eyes. And when they began to talk about doing the White Pine Trail, they, they really frankly wondered how he would respond. Is he going to want to come with us? Is this going to be so uncool for him that he's going to say, <laughs> no? Is he going to want to come with us? Well, they went that first day to do the first stage of the White Pine Trail, and everybody went. Even this, even this son, who was growing more distant from mom and dad and the rest of the family, he went to. And then what was interesting was that over subsequent stages of doing this White Pine Trail, again, this is 93 miles, so you can imagine maybe 10, 11 stages to it, perhaps. Anyways, they're going through the subsequent stages, the stages that followed, people would kind of drop out. I mean, one of the boys would drop off, you know, I'll do it next time, Dad, you know. And then another boy would drop out. Uh, I'll, I'll join you next time. Even his wife, he said, even my wife decided not to come one or, three, one or two times. Here's the interesting part this middle son who had been growing sullen and distant and isolated, he stuck with it. It was like it gave him a new a new sense of being and purpose a new sense of being with and there were a number of stages along the way where it was just dad and son dad and son on the bikes doing a stage of the white pine trail together and at this point in the story he started kind of getting a little emotional because he said i saw my son over the course of these stages that we did together, over the course of this White Pine Trail, these 93 miles, I saw my son change yet again. From being sullen and distant and isolated to becoming again this sweet young man who just moved towards us rather than away from us. Moved towards me as his dad rather than away from me. It's like whatever had been happening before began to reverse itself as we spent time together biking down this trail. And as he was telling the story, I, I thought to myself, here we are in this environment of COVID-19 where there's so much to disappoint us, so much that's taken away from us, where we're wrestling with things like ambiguous loss. That's the loss that you can't put a finger on, but you know it's real, right? It's, it's the same kind of loss that a uh, spouse of somebody who's got Alzheimer's experiences. They're losing over time in ways they can't even recognize. They just know they're losing things. COVID-19 is doing that to all of us. We're, it's, we're experiencing ambiguous loss. So we're in this environment where all this hard stuff is happening, and yet there are beautiful pictures like this, this sullen young man who's coming back to life as he hangs with his family, his dad particularly, on the White Pine Trail. Things that make you smile because they're of God. And friends, I just want to have you hold this grand and great story in your minds as you make your way into this week. And you'll have a 100 voices calling to you tomorrow morning, saying, do this, and do that, and don't do that, and don't do this, and think this way, and don't think that way. And you'll wonder what's solid, where you can lay your feet, put your feet and stand solidly and i want you to know that this story of god's smile at creation his frown and grieving at the fall and his smile again at the work of jesus on the cross and at its implications in subsequent seasons of the world's existence and its fulfillment in the time to come when he will come again this is your story everybody this is your story and you get to fit into this story because you know what it is To smile at the beautiful things of creation and you know what it is to frown and be grieved at the hard things of the fall and you know what it is to see signs that the kingdom is coming when 13 year old boys come back to life and young people make profession of faith and politicians tell the truth you know what's coming you can picture God smiling and you just feel within yourself I want to join him in that too Would you pray with me? Dear Father God, we smile with you at the beautiful things of creation that we can see around us. And we grieve with you, O God, at the ways in which this beautiful creation has been twisted and torn by the fall. Particularly the pinnacle of creation, humankind, taken from being trusting and exercising perfect stewardship and loving one another faithfully, taken from that to being at enmity with one another, at odds with you, and abusing creation. And we grieve with you over these things, O God. And we smile with you as we see Jesus taking his place there at the Jordan River, Father, and indicating that he will take our place there and then at the cross and pay the price for human sin and defeat Satan's power and provide a way for creation to be restored as the kingdom of God becomes real. We smile with you in all of the evidences that that is on the way. Father, thank you for this map that we can hold in our heads that will give us a firm and solid place to stand tomorrow morning and in the weeks to come. When there are so many things that want to confuse us, about what is real. Thank you for this map. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.